Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Dr. Aoife Brennan, president and CEO of Synlogic, a wonderful company working at the intersection of biology and engineering and really pioneering this application of synthetic biology. Don't worry, I asked her to define what that was so that I could follow. In this episode, we discuss Aoife's journey to becoming a phenomenally experienced physician scientist and drug developer. There's a phrase that Aoife mentions of being sustainably uncomfortable. And we discuss what it was like to move from Ireland to the U.S. in what she thought would be a couple years and has continued on for 16 plus years later. She is constantly in the pursuit of challenging herself and doing difficult things while also having impact. And I find her to be so remarkably inspiring. From her curiosity and her humility combined with her drive, it's such an amazing triple threat. And make sure to stick around at the end and learn a little bit about luck hope you enjoy this conversation with the extraordinary Dr. Aoife Brennan. Hi, Aoife. Welcome to the show. Oh, it's so nice to be on. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining. And a big thank you to Tim Liu, the wonderful doctor and scientist and entrepreneur. We were discussing all the great, amazing things that they're doing at the Senti team and super innovative stuff. And when we were discussing my show and catching up, your name had come up. And so he had mentioned that you were such an inspiring leader in the field, and I couldn't wait to connect. So thank you so much to Tim for the intro. Oh, yes, I need to thank him next time I see him too for connecting us. Absolutely. Before we talk about your incredibly unique path in medicine and biotech now, and currently your role as president and CEO of Synlogic, I like to rewind the guest highlight reel all the way back. And so if you don't mind sharing first where you grew up, I grew up in Ireland in a small village outside a small town. The town's called Kilkenny. Anime Buffs, it's where the Wolf Walkers, it was recently nominated for an Oscar for Best Animated Movie. They do like hand animation. That was basically my childhood. I grew up literally as a wolf walker <laughs> in the outskirts, in the hinterlands of this town called Kilkenny. Very free range upbringing. Summers, you were kind of left to your own devices to just entertain yourself. Not a lot of structure. I was the oldest of five. I have four, two brothers, two sisters. Parents were always super busy, of course. So I was kind of left to my own devices a lot. When I contrast my upbringing to, you know, my kids and how involved I am in their education, of course, my parents cared that I was happy and doing well. I can remember, you know, a handful of times where my parents were at my school, for instance. So it was a very different upbringing. I didn't really have any STEM or mentors. Science and medicine were not necessarily things that I was exposed to growing up. You got your vaccinations through school. You never really visited your general practitioner unless 
you had a big problem. And even then, the pharmacist had to try to figure out, it was kind of the last resort was to visit a physician. So didn't have much exposure to medicine as a career growing up. Sometimes I feel like I have to pinch myself when I think, how did a girl from my hometown end up in this place? Particularly as I'm interacting with people like Tim, speaking to the team at MIT or helping young founders think about how they can establish themselves. And often these founders have amazing backgrounds, just so smart. I think, oh my goodness, how did I end up here? What sequence of events led me to this place? It's always kind of amazing to think back. Early thing that influenced me and probably set me on a certain path was when I was about 11 years old, my parents sent me to an all-girl Catholic boarding school. Home life was always chaotic. From a really young age, I was like looking after younger siblings and cooking and all that kind of stuff. And I think going the structure and the discipline of that kind of boarding school education. Now, you know, with my American friends, I talk to them about maybe I should send my kids to boarding school. They're like, "Ah, this is like something extreme. But culturally, it's not that extreme. But it's a very disciplined education, right? You have a very set schedule. Lights go on at a certain time. You go to church every morning study hall. And I actually thrived in that disciplined environment. I think it's where I started to focus in and think about study and think seriously about scholarship and stretching my mind and doing difficult things. And I always, you know, that gave me an idea of, okay, I want to stretch. I want to do difficult things. I want to stretch beyond. Love problem solving was very much gravitated towards the math and the sciences in school. And early on, we had rural Ireland set up. There was like the girls' conference school was on one side, the boys' Christian brothers' school was on the other side of the street with like big walls. You'd look at over the walls at the boys coming and going across the streets. But early on, a math teacher in the school took a group of us aside and said, I can see that you're finding these math problems really easy. Have you ever considered you know, doing extra? There was this other subject called applied mathematics, which is a blend of math and physics. How about we do an after-school club where we start to do applied math and you can then sit for the national exam in applied math. And that was really great because there were like five or six of us. And then eventually one or two of the boys from the boys' school came over. And it was the first time we kind of got that, I can do this too. Nothing special about the boys. You could see them struggling on some problems. And so I think it really gave me confidence and really made me feel like, okay, I kind of like this extra stuff. I kind of want to stretch. But when it came time to decide what to do next, it wasn't so easy. There was like one career guidance counselor for the entire school, very sweet, but old fashioned lady. I can even smell the smell in her office, remember exactly what was on the wall that I was facing when we had our first conversation. When she said, you're smart, everyone likes you, teachers, you know, I'll say good things about you. What are you going to do next? I might apply for medicine. She was horrified. She said, oh my goodness, you're going to be married. You need to consider teaching. It's a really nice career to balance life. And if you do want to have a career, you really need to think differently about this and push back. And I remember sitting there and just talking at me and giving me all this advice. And I was just focused on this <laughs> picture on the wall behind her desk. And it was the first time I've had this experience of not every adult gives you good advice. It was that time where I was like, okay, I know myself, I really want to stretch. Yet I was hearing all this other advice about how difficult it was going to be. I had no family connections. 
what did I know about medicine? This just wasn't really a career for a girl, a type of thing. And having that just sitting there quietly listening and focusing on the smell in the room and what she was wearing and <laughs> the twin set and pearls. And just that experience has stayed with me forever. And I think it was the first time that I mentally put down my foot and said, thank you very much for that advice. <laughs> Cut up and left with my own mind made up. Of course, I've had multiple episodes of that since, but I think that was the first time that I asserted my own, no, I have an idea of what I want to do and it's different to yours and I'm going to follow my own path. That's amazing. There's one woman I interviewed, Elizabeth Shaughnessy, also from Ireland, and she said that she's 84 years young now, but she said at the time that she really excelled in mathematics. And at the time, and this is six decades ago, seven decades ago, that in high school, she tested really well in mathematics and her dad wanted her to pursue more math education. And the school said, no, this is just for boys. And he goes, we'll test them. And lo and behold, they tested several girls who were interested in being tested and they tested phenomenally well. So I'm glad that you pushed back and I'm glad that you realized that all adults and all people might not give you the best advice, but that's amazing that you did it at such a young age. And so you went to Trinity, you focused on medicine. What was that like for you? You know, there's lots of episodes during the career. I was like the country girl coming to a big city. Now you go home to Dublin. I'm like, oh my God, it's so parochial. This was like a big step. It was intimidating. There were like people everywhere, cars everywhere. People in my class that I felt were more polished than I was, a lot smarter. They had done all the science. They'd had lots of prep for college. I was kind of, you know, dropped off at the college door and off you go. My parents have been amazingly supportive throughout, but I think they had this fear that they couldn't help me. You know, I was beyond the point going to Dublin, going to Trinity, studying medicine. They had no real ability to help or step in. So I was kind of on my own. And I remember that conversation with my parents of saying, we don't really know anyone who you know is always important, right? But it was really important back then. Studying medicine was seen as something the kids of physicians did. And if you got into trouble, you know, your dad would phone someone and it would get sorted out. So there was always this thing like, okay, you've grown beyond where we can help. We wish you well and off you go. And that first year was just overcoming that and feeling, okay, I can keep up here. I can do okay. And then the first year kind of getting the end of year exams and doing very well was that kind of like, I belong. This wasn't some crazy idea. My high school exams weren't a fluke. This is real. I belong here and I can compete and none of these people are better than me. So you kind of have to go through that thing. And that's come up multiple times because my first instinct is when you go into a new setting where you stretch across that line into something that you felt was beyond you, you have this period of like, do I bring value? Am I a peer? Do I belong in this new group? But it always takes, in my opinion, six, nine months, because I tend to be quiet and to observe, to just wait and work. And often it takes people, professors, to kind of surprise, right? At the end, like, oh, where did you come from? These are amazing results. We weren't even aware of you. You weren't on our radar. You know, that's been kind of a theme throughout my career. And I think that was probably the first experience. But it was great. Ireland, it's pre-med, pre-clinical, and then your clinical year, it's like a six-year program that's end-to-end. Loved the science, but I really loved the piece when, when we got into the clinic. So first three years are all basic science, chemistry, pharmacology, anatomy. And then you leave the college campus and you move to the hospital campus for the second part. And that's where I really thrive because suddenly there were like applied problems. I was really, I loved these diagnostic cases. I just loved, there were like paper charts at the time. So, you know, I was never happier than where you had that like six volume 
chart of somebody with all this like really complicated medical history and no one knows what's going on. You're plowing through and you find some nugget <laughs> that explains everything. You know, that was why I love that piece. And so just really thrived in, in the clinic. And then subsequently graduated top of my class in Trinity, which was they give a gold medal to the person. They don't award one every year, but they award a gold medal for outstanding achievement. So that was nice. And my parents were, of course, completely shocked by this. Whoa. <laughs> that you do that. I remember the professor of medicine called my mom on the first cell phones. And they had this like big magnum of champagne for me. And of course, my mom didn't know what to do. You know, this famous professor calling her. It was fun. That was a fun experience. That's fantastic. And so when you were completing your medical degree, is that when you started exploring your research in metabolism? Because I know that was the early stages of your interest. But when was that? Towards the end of medicine, things have changed maybe a little bit, but there was always this idea that you wanted to be a tr what was called a triple threat, teaching, clinical care, and research. So to be professor of medicine and to have that progressive academic career, you had to excel in all three areas. And I considered for a while pursuing a PhD, getting another advanced degree in science. I had a mentor at the time and who said, look, Aoife, just get on with it. You've brains to burn, you find your way, you don't need any more training, just get on and start doing things and making an impact. And I was like, okay. So I thought that was good advice. So I did pursue training. In some ways, medicine is kind of, you go from one tunnel to another and you finish med school, it's all about where you're going to do your internship and then your residency and then your fellowship, right? So there's like really clear steps. You always know what's next, what you have to do next. There's like set exams that you do along the way. I think that's a good thing, particularly because I was pretty young at the time. I graduated med school, I think, at 23. So I was still pretty young. But it's a bad thing in that you don't really get to be reflective because there's almost a default next step. So I didn't really get to be reflective, I think, until I was in the second half of my endocrinology training. And what led me to endocrinology was that endocrinology at the time was all the diagnostic dilemmas. You know, it was a really data-rich specialty. I loved, we would do these testing, you bring somebody in for testing and you get all this data and you try to work out which hormone system was impacting and loved all of that. And towards the end of my training, I realized, oh gosh, you know, 99% of what I will see post finishing training, your training is skewed towards this strange stuff, but practice is predominantly routine stuff which is a lot of diabetes and thyroid, and it's a lot of pattern recognition and seeing the same things. And I thought at one point, oh God, I'm kind of going to be a bit bored here. So I need to do something else. I need to pursue more training. Along the way, I met my husband. He was a fellow when I was a resident. So we wanted to go abroad. Now we had two academic careers to manage together. So we came to the US and it was right around the time leptin had been discovered as a new hormone. There was lots of really interesting research. Amgen had just acquired the IP. We're developing it for treatment of obesity. There were all these questions about this new frontier, right? A new hormone system covered. And so I came to the Beck Israel to do some graduate work. And my plan was absolutely like this was the next step in that tunnel of medical training. You finished your training, you did some time abroad, and you waited for an academic position to come up back in Ireland. So that was very much the way that it worked. It was a one-year thing, fully expected to be back in Ireland a year later. But of course, that was 16 years ago and hasn't happened. So, <laughs> so I'd love to 
going back to your experience then at Beth Israel, it was a one-year stint. What were you focusing on and researching then? Yeah, so it was to work on leptin physiology. There were like high leptin states like obesity, and then there were some low leptin states that were related to lipoatrophy and a side effect, highly active antiretroviral treatment for HIV. So there was a lot of really interesting stuff. I was super fortunate because right as I arrived, there was a NIH had this program for training. There was this realization that we needed to invest more in great science just wasn't finding its way to therapeutics. There was this valley of death. The NIH said, okay, we're going to invest in a training program to train physicians how to do translational research. And it was pretty amazing. I applied and was accepted. I couldn't believe it. I was like, do people know that I'm not, I'm a US citizen now, but back then, obviously I was on a temporary visa. Is someone going to ask? No one asked. I got on this program, which was a two-year program and amazing. You were a full-time student at Harvard, so you could audit any program on campus. You paid no fees. You performed research as well as having this formal training program. So that kind of kept me for an addition. We were committed. I mean, you can't say no to that kind of opportunity. And part of it was semester in the business school, which was kind of another fish out of water type of experience for me. You spent one semester at the Harvard Business School doing the commercializing science program. And that program was a lot of MBAs and then like a small group of poorly dressed physicians. None of us had business cards. You know, all the MBA students were giving out business cards, introducing themselves very assertively. And we were like, oh, hi, I'm first. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me, for letting me join your class. We'll just sit at the back and not make much noise. <laughs> Did you like those classes? Do you remember some of them? I have a few engineering friends who said that they took a communications course or a business course or an economics course that didn't apply to their field at all. But those are the ones that really impacted them. And then just in an interdisciplinary structure, were able to apply in other ways. For you, did you find the business courses complementary to all of your medical research? Well, I had to get over my intimidation first, because the case teaching method at the Harvard Business School, I didn't come up in that type of teaching environment. Number one, the environment is just you go from these hospitals with peeling linoleum with people smoking with their IV drip and thing. And then you're in this beautiful, it looks like a country club with these leather chairs with buttons. And just the whole thing is very, very different. And then the case teaching thing was like, oh my God, someone's going to call on me to speak. It's just terrifying. But Vicky Sato was the teacher at the time. And she, of course, was very, to I think, the cultural differences and calling on the scientists and physicians to speak up. Once we got over the initial intimidation, and you you can see behind the MBA students had this amazing polish because they were all in, I don't know, like the second year of their program, this thing. And they you know often had a lot of work experience in the business world before coming to Harvard Business School. So I had this amazing presentation st- style and presence. But often when you get over that and start listening to the content of the comments, you start, hold on a sec, this is not how it works in practice. They're talking about treatment paradigms or they're talking about an opportunity in a specific disease. And I'm like, hold on a sec. I know this. This is not how it works. <laughs> this idea is never going to fly because in the real world, you have to send a test and the result doesn't come back for four days. How are you going to know? Once you get over that and you start to say, okay, I need to be part of this conversation because they have a completely false view of how this works in practice and you find your voice and you start to realize like, wow, you can have so much impact. The second part of the program was a where we had to form teams around. And of course, it's like super competitive, but 
they formed teams. They had somebody, an MBA student was kind of set to form teams around these different pieces of IP. Just as we were like sneaking out the back of class, I needed all these people like, can you be on my team? We really need a physician. We really need somebody who understands this to help us write a business plan for around this IP. And suddenly you're really in demand and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> I have something of value. Great. That was just a great experience. My husband, at one point, you know, I came home from spending a day and he, he observed to me, whatever you're doing right now, you must be really enjoying because you're so energized and I can see that you're really into it. And I don't know what you're doing, whatever it is, you're obviously having a lot of fun. And when somebody who knows you very well says that to you, there's a really important message there. And I think that experience really made me feel when a recruiter came to talk to me about a career in biotech, it was a complete left turn from what I saw as my ultimate goal, which was to return to Ireland to an academic role. It made me open. It made me feel like, okay, I have a duty to explore this and at least find out more and spend time to think about, oh, could I see myself in this world? And I think I often joke because I meet Vicky at biotech events. It's your fault. She's like, oh, you know, you're doing great. It's great to see you doing well. I said, well, you know, you were there at that point of inflection, right, where I at least opened my thinking to something outside of this very organized linear path I had laid out for myself. That's fantastic, especially your husband's comment. The hardest thing, I think, is to get high quality feedback because it's just rare unless you have this formulaic business review every year and say, okay, but to get that organically is great. Can we talk about your work in rare diseases? Yeah, I think it's like this theme from early on, right, of solving problems. And I've always gravitated towards opportunities where there was, wasn't a prescribed path. It wasn't just take something from point A to point B. It was more of a puzzle piece. And I got that experience early on in my time at Biden. So the first company I moved to, I will say, Growth from Failure podcast, the first company I moved to right out of academia was a great company, a phenomenal experience, private stage biotech company, loved my team, would have been happy to stay there forever, but three years in had a phase three trial failure. And that was a big eye opener to me because I got a pink slip, which as a physician, I'm laid off, which is such a huge thing. The only people I had heard of who lost their jobs were clinical medicine. You have to do something so egregious to lose your job that it was a big shock to me. Was it because of the trial failure that you lost your job specifically? I don't know this area as well, but is there room for adjustment or flexibility? Is that normal? As I was working there, I had this idea, well, this doesn't work out. We have these other programs be coming behind. There was room to continue to do dose exploration and go forward. But at the time, it was a VC-backed company. The investors just wanted their money back. There was still some cash in the company. They didn't feel that there was enough cash to take the company through some of that exploration to another value inflection point. It was a really good lessons learned for me in the reality of doing high-risk biomedical research and how expensive it is and how if something fails... Being able to pivot requires the resources and the investor relationships and everything else to make that happen. So the company shut down so quickly. It was like within a couple of weeks of that readout, we were taken to a room and said, closing down the company. And six months later, it no longer existed. So it was a company called Tolerex. And I remember coming home and telling my husband, I'm like, I lost my job today. And he's like, oh my God, what do we do? You know, what happens next? When you get fired for this trial failure, were you 
confident then in your skill set and your experience, or were you nervous? There's an emotional response, then it's a cognitive response. So I'm like always nervous. Oh my goodness, all those people who told me I was making a big mistake leaving academic medicine were right. There's always this kind of niggling fear. What happens if, what happens if I'm a foreign medical graduate? I didn't go to a US med school. You know, you go through all of this fear, but then cognitively you're like, hold on a second. There's always going to be that piece. Cognitively, when I was thinking about it logically, we were trying to hire another medical director for another program and just how difficult it was to hire. So I knew there was a need for my skill set, but just it's always difficult to completely have this mind over your emotional response to not having a job or not having a professional identity. You know, it's, it's always difficult, but it didn't last very long because within about two weeks, <laughs> had multiple offers and very promising opportunities, an opportunity at Biogen basically just completely following my gut. I had this idea of I've done this small company thing. I want to work at a company that has revenue so that at least I can get to see something through. You know, this thing about job stability, which of course is ridiculous now that I know, but I was kind of gravitating towards more stability because I still had a little bit of post-trauma from the layoffs and applied for a job at Biogen, even though it wasn't on paper, I had no real expertise. They were a neuroscience company. I had no neuroscience background. I just had a really good feeling about the culture within the organization. I knew it was very science-centric, really liked the people that I was going to be working with. Had offers where the on-paper match was probably a better fit, but went to Biogen just because of this gut check and the fact that they had commercial revenue. It turned out to be the best decision probably I've ever made. Because I wasn't a neuroscientist, I got to do the stuff that nobody else wanted to do, which was awesome because... At the time, Biogen had this Tecfidera revenue, right? From That was their third MS product, was the oral product for MS that was a really big success commercially. So they had all this revenue and they were doing a lot of strategic exercises to look at where else can they expand, a lot of very aggressive business development, meeting small companies. And of course, I got thrown into all of that because I had this generalist skill set I wasn't necessarily a neurologist. And also I was amenable to crazy ideas. I built a relationship and I found over time I was getting involved in more and more interesting conversations. And every six months, Biogen was going through this really rapid growth phase. Every six months, I would just be getting comfortable with my role and feeling like, okay, I've gotten my arms around the programs, a full plate. Now I know what's going on. And they would throw another project at me or have another challenge or another problem that needed input. So it was just this amazing period of learning, not only about the programs I was working on, but also about all of the other programs that were going on at the time. Biogen were doing a gene therapy strategy, and I got to get involved in that and learn a lot about new modalities. I was involved in lots of pitches for new companies. So it really opened up. And as part of that process, Biogen got into the hemophilia business. And it was the classic story, you know, they knew a lot about neurology. This was a new area and they needed somebody to go over and develop these products for hemophilia. So I ended up being in the right place at the right time and started to become really interested in developing products for rare disease. How different that was to the MS model, helping make the case that we need to do things differently in rare diseases, that the MS playbook is not going to work over here, right? This is a very different approach loved the fact that you can follow the science that you don't necessarily have to follow what someone else did before in rare diseases you get a lot of flex you still have to demonstrate 
safety, efficacy and quality, but you get to have a lot of flexibility. Often you're doing things no one's done before, very interactive with regulators. They really want to help you. They can see what you're doing is important for patients. And I just really love that. And then a couple of years later, the program that probably has had the highest impact that I've worked on was the Biogen program for spinal muscular atrophy, which is a devastating pediatric neurological condition where kids end up on ventilators at age two, and some of them never walk. And there was this very high risk, first time anyone has done this program, that was still looking very murky. A lot of people at Biogen didn't believe that it was working at all. We had a collaboration with Ionis. It was kind of one of these, Aoife's good at strange things. Let's see if what she thinks about this program and how we can move it forward. And the program ended up being amazingly successful. I don't think I did very much other than being open to it being different, but ended up being a huge win for Biogen and a hugely impactful product for patients and parents. You downplay, oh, I just was open to the idea, but it's that ability and that skill to have this beginner's mind where most people don't do that. There's a habit where it's always been done this way, or this is how we always do it. And the idea of someone saying, let's try and explore, that's, you used the word just in there. It's a really big deal because the way you describe your work in rare diseases at Biogen didn't mention, but I'll mention it for you. You were head of the rare disease innovation unit. So it's just one of those things that you're so humble. It was because you that so many things were pushed forward. So you spent six years at Biogen. What encouraged you to leave and be now president and CEO of Synlogic? And if you could describe what Synlogic is. Happy to. So right around the time, I probably would have stayed at Biogen if they had continued to pursue the rare disease focused strategy. But at the time, they were announced that they were spinning off BioVertive. So the hemophilia products and the hematology rare disease programs were moving to this new company. I had an opportunity to move with the new company or to stay at Biogen. In both cases, I felt like my remit would have been narrower than my role as head of the rare disease innovation unit. And so that was the period for six years. I did nothing. I didn't take any recruiter calls. I did nothing. But that was the point where I said, okay, maybe I owe it to myself to look, not just to follow the default, but to look outside and see what's out there. And I thought because I had been involved in so many due diligence, I thought I'd seen everything. And then Synlogic came along as an opportunity, and I was just really intrigued. So what my current company does is we apply synthetic biology to bacteria. That's how I know Tim, because he's a big synthetic biology leader within that field. So I thought, wow, this is kind of cool. Taking a step back, for those who have no idea what synthetic biology is, can you describe what it is? Because I would say most of my listeners, if I were to guess based on my feedback, they're mostly people in finance or investments or business. And I remember having a discussion with Tim about what he does. I thought it was talking about anime. I thought it was in this different world. If you could give a fundamentals on synthetic biology, that'd be great. Yes, yeah, so synthetic biology is a field that exists at this intersection of engineering and biology. Basically, at its core, aims to apply engineering principles to cells and biological systems. So what we do is we take a probiotic bacteria, something that's been used, isolated from the human gut, has been used by lots of people as an over-the-counter supplement. And then we actually engineer the genome of that bacterium to make have it perform specific functions that might be missing or damaged due to disease. It's very much understanding of the disease mechanism, thinking about how a bacterial-based medicine can help 
and then engineering in the specific functionality. So you're really creating a new bacterium, if you will, because you're genetically modifying an existing probiotic, but you're doing it in the service of treating a specific disease. So you're leveraging this relationship that bacteria have with our own metabolism, where they're on and around us, they're everywhere. We're leveraging that cross-communication as a way to treat disease in completely new ways. And the really exciting thing for me is lots of successful drug development, but there's still so many diseases where there are no treatment options or where there's treatment option, but it's really not addressing the needs that patients have. Developing a new modality is really difficult, but it allows you to be able to take another look at these unmet needs and say, okay, maybe now that we have this completely new way of doing things, we can unlock big benefits for patients or we can take it from a different angle or different direction. And so that's really the promise. Synthetic biology generally is impacting lots of things. We're in this tiny little sliver of synthetic biology. It's been used to generate replacements for leather to make luxury goods and sneakers. Both threads just had this really interesting collaboration with Adidas. It's been used in the agriculture field. It's just been used in the biofuels. It's just so many places where Symbio has potential to be a major disruptor, but we're this little narrow slice in therapeutics. It's a really exciting time. That was super helpful. If you then can expand on what Synlogic specifically does. Yes. So I came to Synlogic initially as chief medical officer. At the time we were working on two different diseases that I thought would be a really great application, really great way to test out the technology. My assessment was that the programs would move quickly. And as a drug developer, you kind of like things that are making progress so that you have something to work on. What we do is we apply synthetic biology to bacteria as a way to treat metabolic diseases. So there are lots of different metabolic diseases. Some are inherited, so these are diseases kids are born with. Others are acquired, where there's a specific enzyme and a pathway that's required to break down food is some part of the metabolic pathway that's dysfunctional, where you get accumulation of whatever the product upstream of that block is. And so what we do is we engineer bacteria to consume that upstream metabolite as a way to treat the disease. So we have two programs down the clinic. One is for the treatment of an inherited disease called phenylketonuria, where there's a block in the metabolism of phenylalanine, which is an amino acid found in proteins. And then the second disease that's in the clinic is an acquired metabolic disease where patients have elevated oxalate, which is found in a lot of leafy green fruits and vegetables and nuts and tea. And patients who have underlying GI disease just absorb too much of it. So the only way to get rid of it is in the kidneys and high urinary oxalate causes a lot of kidney damage. It can be very devastating with recurrent stones and eventually kidney failure. They're kind of niche diseases. What we're doing is completely new in those disease areas. They're really fun projects and really stimulating and engaging. Think of how we can continue to develop the platform as well as advance our own programs. And so it's been a really interesting run. And I should say, so I was chief medical officer for about six or nine months and then became CEO some time ago. So it's been a fun ride for me. I've been with the company almost five years. That's fantastic. I'm curious about your schedule because the way that you even describe what Synlogic does, it leverages your medical background, but also, I mean, you have to know about nutrition. You have to know about engineering. How much time do you spend researching all the different segments that you can research versus the clinical trials versus the management now that you're CEO? What is your time management process? Because 
I want to steal it. But how do you break it all down? I struggle a lot. No one can give you a job description of what the CEO of this small biotech company is because it's different every day. But I think what you really have to focus on is where integration is required because I'm really lucky that we have an amazing executive team. I have an amazing chief scientific officer who's on the details of the science. I have a chief medical officer who's really good at designing clinical trials. I have a chief financial officer in the finance time. But where I need to really focus my energies is integrating and seeing across all of those areas, speaking to investors and coming back with, here are the questions that investors have about what we're doing. Let's make sure we're addressing those as we design a clinical trial. And I have to try not to get into the weeds of any one area, because if I do, I lose my ability to elevate and see across the entire landscape. And I try to manage time. I try to be thoughtful about it. And I think the nicest thing about having a small company, I sometimes joke with my board when they ask me for feedback about how they can do better to support the company. I kind of tell them, well, even if you were cardboard cutouts, you'd still be so valuable. Having a board meeting cadence forces not just me, but the rest of the executive team. So, you know, at least once a quarter, you have to stand back and look at the totality and go back to the, what's the story of the company here? And how do we coherently communicate that? I think without that forcing function, it would be difficult because you're so focused on the problem of the week. But I think the board cadence and the board schedule really helps me elevate. I have a practice, which is to write a board note. I recommend so therapeutic for me. Often you find, I think, a real problem with our modern business world that it's all slides, putting the slides, putting the slides. But you have to really step back and write the narrative and then have the slides reflect the narrative. Because if you don't do that, you end up unclear yourself in terms of what you think is important. What's keeping you up at night? What are you worried about? And just it's so much easier to do in long form, in a narrative form, like a letter. <laughs> a couple of weeks before the board meeting, I'll write a dear board <laughs> letter. It's as much for me as it is for them, quite honestly. They're a really useful surrogate for me to think and have an opportunity to think. And then we really try to have the slides reflect the narrative as opposed to being a mishmash of different things we've done in the quarter, <laughs> but really to step back and have an opportunity to see the big picture. There's so much more that I want to ask you about Synlogix, and we'll save that for the next time I'm on the East Coast and we'll have a drink and I'll ask you all my really silly questions about more of the synthetic biology. But I'd love to pivot now to the questions I ask everybody on my show. You had mentioned, at least in early age and in high school and your studies, that you didn't really have a role model per se. But I'd be curious, who or what inspires you? There's so much inspiration, right? Particularly the last year, just frontline healthcare workers, people who've developed vaccines who've just gone above and beyond. I mean, it's just that's so inspiring for me. You know, the mRNA story is just an amazing story. People who struggled and pushed a rock up a hill, no one believed that this technology was ever going to have real world applicability. And then, bam, it's had a huge impact on our lives. And I think, yeah, there's the people who had the glory role right now, but that wouldn't have happened if there hadn't been people who believed for 10, 15 years before and was you know, doggedly working on the delivery, this problem, that problem. Because it's so easy to walk away from a program in development, particularly you know, a scientific program. And it really takes a kind of special person to stick with it and to keep pushing and to overcome the challenges. So I think that's just been amazingly impactful. I think as a woman in business, there are a lot of people that I can look back on who I interacted with throughout my career who made me feel like, okay, it's okay to be both feminine and in charge. Something that I think I struggled with a lot 
coming up as a young doctor, for instance, interacting with nursing staff or other team members, such a struggle. Do you come across as too authoritarian? Do you come across as a pushover? How do you thread the line with that? Some people took me aside and gave me really good advice along the way, which was amazing. And I can think about some role models. There was one, our professor of pediatrics when I was, you know, in training was a woman called Hilary Hoey. And she was just this amazing, nice, gentle person. But my God, you didn't mess with her. So she had this style. I kept thinking, I want that style because she wasn't the B1TCH kind of side of things. She was in charge. The men were afraid of her. She had an amazing intellect. When you see her examining a child, she was just like, it was a form of art. She put the kid at ease. She was just doing the exam without the kid knowing that she was examining them. Just an amazing person. And I think there's people like that, that along the way probably encouraged me to not necessarily feel like you have to make an either or kind of trade off that you have to trade off having a family, being a wife, being in a good partnership for your academic interests. And I think just seeing those people is just so helpful as you're at those younger parts of your career that encourage you say, it's okay to have high standards. It's okay to be demanding. It's okay to send something back if it's not right. That's okay, right? There's a way that you can do that. And I think I'm so glad that I had that exposure to those individuals at the right time as I was developing as a leader, which is so important. I love that. What are you most proud of? I think it's the people that I've helped because I think one of the reasons to go into industry is to have this effect multiplier so that it's not just what you can do. If you develop a medicine, then it helps so many more patients than you could see in a clinic individually. And I feel the same way about people that hopefully I've helped professionally, particularly around people who've maybe been at a transition point and left academia to come to industry and then see them thrive. And there's a number of people in the Boston ecosystem now that I was their first boss out of academia, you know, moved from clinical medicine into drug development. And now to see them just thriving, it's just so amazing. I don't even want to name names because there's just a lot of people and meeting them. And it's one thing I kind of regret in COVID time that I don't get a chance to bump into these people and say, you know, wow, you've really been uh, taken off. Your career is doing amazing. And that's great. Having that warm relationship with people that you've helped professionally has been amazing and being able to pay it forward because I've had a lot of help in, in my career too. I think that's probably at the end of the day it. Yeah. Fantastic. One question I started incorporating based on some questions that I got from listeners is luck and the idea of how much does that guest think that luck affected their life? Good luck, bad luck. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on how luck has affected your life. You're in drug development. So much of it is luck, getting the right science, having the right hypothesis, being exposed to the right people. But there's also a lot of times luck is associated with being Irish, right? Often like lucky, the mask, the Celtics is an Irish person. But actually the Gaelic for good luck is berbua, which means bring victory. So when you say to somebody, good luck, in the Gaelic language, you say berbua, which means just bring victory. I actually kind of like that more than I like luck because it does imply an element of you have an influence here too. So you have to take victory or bring victory means it's a combination, not just of luck, but also your own personal effort and scrappiness and willing to work for it. I kind of like that (laughs) term more than I do luck. I love that so much. One newer question I want to add is, what is your superpower? Most of the time I'm surrounded by people who are far brighter than I am, probably have much higher IQ scores. 
I think it's this ability to be able to marry the science elements with the human elements and bring both together, because that's ultimately what projects and drug development is. I know just enough about science, just enough about psychology to pull it all together in a coherent way that allows a program to move forward. And I think if I had to have a superpower, I think it's probably in that, because often you find some people who are super smart, the science and the engineering side of things often lose the ability of how their science can impact or how their style can impact others. And drug development is such a team sport. And ultimately, we're developing something for real people, for patients. So I think being able to pull both of those, you know, not be overly emotional, but also not be overly analytical and being able to pull both together so that everyone can tolerate me, <laughs> maybe is, is the superpower I've got. But I need to think about it. So next time you ask me the question, I have a better answer. No, I love that. The last question I ask everyone is based on the name of the show. Initially, I asked people to highlight one of their failures that really impacted them. And over time, so many of the answers, if not all of the answers, incorporated so much struggle already, but then ended up with the growth and lessons learned. So now I just changed the question to share. What is your biggest growth moment or one of the most impactful growth moments that you've had, either personally or professionally? I think moving to the U.S. was a big growth moment for me. It just felt like starting from scratch and having to make friends, find my way professionally. All of that piece, I think, was just a huge growth opportunity. It was a huge growth opportunity in my marriage and my relationship with my husband because suddenly, just you and me, <laughs> we have been and a small baby to try and find a way to work this out. And then, of course, professionally, it was a huge growth moment because I would never have had the opportunities that I've had here had I continued to work in Ireland. I think that's probably the time of greatest struggle. And the homesickness, it took me about two years to really settle here and feel like this was home. That probably has to be it. What's next for Aoife Brennan? I don't know. Hopefully, I'll continue to do hard things. <laughs> None of this was planned. I just keep making sure that what I'm working on is difficult and impactful. And hopefully I'll continue to do that. Yeah, wherever that takes me, who knows? So you kind of have to know yourself. Yes, yeah, sometimes it gets high where your hair starts falling out. You know you're not in a sustainable place. And you try to you know, bring it back to a baseline that where there's enough to keep you engaged and feeling alive. But if you get bored, you know, it sounds great to go to Utah for the winter to ski every day. Yeah, sure, that would be great. But give me two weeks and I bet you I'll be begging <laughs> to be back in Cambridge again. I think that's the reality. So it's about maintaining this. I talk about being sustainably uncomfortable. You have to call it back when it gets unsustainable and just start saying no, but also recognize that it makes you feel alive when you're needed. And there's a certain level that just is energizing. It's all about the balance, I think. I love that. Sustainably uncomfortable. I love that motto. Well, Aoife, thank you so much. I had a blast in this conversation. Thank you for joining yeah. me. Yes, and please do reach out if you're in Boston. Great. Thanks so much, Jane.